right, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Stories from a Mountain Town. Uh, here via Zoom, I have with me Benji Alexander. Benji, welcome. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. Can you tell everyone where you're um, Zooming into us from? Uh, you can see the palm trees behind if you're watching the video version. I'm Zooming in from Montego Bay, Jamaica. Montego Bay. That's, I was, I was going to ask you what city, and I've actually been to Montego Bay. Yeah, it's, it's beautiful. Um, I, I got to Jamaica maybe six or seven weeks ago. I spent a bit of time further down the coast towards St. Anne's. Mm-hmm. Uh, spent a couple of weeks on the coastline, and now I'm spending this month here uh, in Montego Bay, and it's, it's been great so far. Yeah, Montego's a beautiful spot. Um, and if you could just tell everyone uh, what you do and, and, why, and why I jumped at the idea of having you on the podcast. Uh, in a nutshell, the reincarnation of Cool Runnings, but actually what that is, <laughs> is I'm training to be the first alpine skier to represent Jamaica in the next Winter Olympics in 2022. Yeah, man, that is such a cool goal. You hear, I've seen, you know, just being here in the mountain community, you, you see different stories like that, where it's like, you know, there's a guy here, I think he comes from Kenya, and he's doing, trying to do that similar thing. Yeah, And yeah. just to to have you have interest in the podcast and want to be on it was like super flattering. So thank you for coming on. It's so cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So, so tell everyone they may not get um, how you're able to compete for Jamaica because you're, you're an American citizen, right? I'm actually a British citizen. I hold dual citizenship. Uh Um, But my my father was born in the the parish of Westmoreland, which is just like the, the south side of the island, due south from where we are in, where I am in Montego Bay. He was part of the Windrush generation. So my grandparents left Jamaica for you know, better existence. They moved to England in the late 50s, early 60s. My father followed them a couple of years later in 61. Um, and so that entitles me to dual citizenship. So I have my uh, citizenship and my passport. Yeah, awesome. And, and yeah, that's fantastic. So you could you could be... You could be, you could compete under in English or as an English athlete too, right? With the citizenship yeah. there. So the only the only hang up with that is I could I, I could compete for both, but the one hookup is that once you've competed for one of your you know citizenships, one of your nationalities, if you're a dual citizen, then there's kind of like a, a buffer period where it's like two and a half years before you can run and then compete for the other one. For so, sure. Yeah. 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 Awesome. Um, and. Uh, could you fill everybody in? I kind of know your, your path to qualifying just from watching the videos you sent and looking at your website. Could you tell everybody, yeah. like, what's your path to, to becoming the, the first Olympic skier for Jamaica? Yeah, so one thing we'll dive into in a moment is that I actually just started skiing in 2016. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm a little older than most of the ski races out there. Um, I'm going to be 38 when the Olympics come around. I'm currently 37. I think the only guy that might be older than me is Nyman, who's also a, a Jackson local, who just had his second child. So shout out to Nyman. Nyman. Um, but, but one of the things that's important to understand about the Olympics is that the spirit of the Olympics is to have as many nationalities represented in as many different uh, sporting disciplines as possible. So what they do is they set out what's called a B standard uh, qualification and each nationality is allowed to put forward one athlete, from, one female athlete and one male athlete at that standard. Now, without getting too deep into it, for those of the, the, those of the listeners that understand ski racing, I have to get down to 160 fist points to qualify as a B standard. 
for those that are not familiar with racing, that basically means they need to be the same level as like a really good 15 or 16 year old racer. <laughs> That's funny. And um, I think one of the videos you said you were like halfway there or something like that. Yeah. So I am absolutely fanatical about numbers. I track absolutely everything and it's the way that I motivate myself to get out there and do the things when I just really don't want to or if I'm still hurt from the day before or if there's some problem. So when you first get your fist license, you start at 999 points. The points go down. Nyman's probably very low double digits, for example. Um, and I've gotten my points in, in six races down from 999 down to 560. Uh, with, so 440 gone, only 400 to go. But they get a lot harder as you get lower. So you know, halfway there numerically or over halfway, but still got a long way to go before I kind of hit that 160 magic number. Yeah, fantastic. And you just are, are you kind of um, on like a, a racing circuit, if you will, to compete and qualify for those new points? Yeah, so I'm, I'm mostly racing in the Western Tech division, which is, you know, um, what was it, Sun Valley, uh, Big Sky, Jackson, a bunch of the Colorado races. Um, fortunately, they've been the first division to announce their races for the 2021 winter. There was some concern that there might be a kind of a, a reduced race calendar because of COVID. And there are 18 races, or sorry, 16 races that are within driving distance of Jackson. So super fortunate to have that. And there will be some more races um, set into the calendar soon. And the way that I look at this is, you know, as I said, and I kind of briefly touched on it, I just started skiing in 2016. I just started racing in January of this year. Big Sky was my first race on the 9th of January. Yeah. Um, and the intention was to spend the 2020 calendar just get, spending as much time on snow as possible. So I skied 181 days, even though we lost the end of the season due to COVID. Um, and just getting as familiar as possible with the sport of skiing. The goal for the 2021 season is actually really to go out there and chase points. So I'm trying to get to about two dozen races. So I feel super blessed that the calendar looks like it's going to go ahead as, as normal. And if all things go according to plan, I should be qualified by April of next year, which is a whole, you know, nine months ahead of the qualification deadline for the Olympics. Yeah, that's fantastic, dude. That, well, well I'm sure everyone in the audience will be looking out for you now. Um, yeah. What is the, what's the current plan for the next Olympics? It's in... Beijing. Beijing. Yeah. And... Are they thinking all the events will go off? Are there, is there going to be like a crowd? Like what, do, have they sent you anything because you're, you're kind of trying to qualify for it? No, not yet. So the, the Olympics are still like 480 days away, approximately. Um, and there's no news as to whether or not there'll be a crowd. Although I do feel very confident that the Olympics will happen. Um, I'm not so confident that we'll have the Summer Games in 2021. I actually lived in Asia for 10 years. And knowing a little bit about the kind of like the the mindset of the Japanese people compared with the mindset of the Chinese people, I think there's a strong possibility that China, uh, Japan just turns around and says, you know what, we don't want to invite this many people into our country right now while the mm -hmm. pandemic is still happening. Even if it's just the athletes, the coaches, support staff, and media, that's 100,000 people. So if you think about what's happening right now in the NBA and the bubble that they're orchestrating, that's nowhere near 100,000 people. And that's a huge undertaking. So Japan is quite likely in my opinion, unless something big happens between now and then to say it's not going to happen. China, on the other hand, because Beijing just had the summer games in 2008, and because they're being quite smart about reusing a lot of the facilities, 
the summer games cost China $40 billion. The winter games is only going to cost them $4 billion. And we're cool. getting images um, out of Wuhan, which is obviously ground zero for COVID, um, of festivals happening, nightclubs are up and running, you know, the relatively normal life happening back in China. And I think more so than perhaps any other country on the planet, China has the power and the manpower, um, the money and the control of their citizens to be able to force something like this to happen uh, and to do whatever it takes to make it so. Control their citizens. That's a good, yeah. good way of saying <laughs> communism. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Uh, so if you mentioned a couple of times, so you only started skiing a couple of years ago. Talk us through why, like how you got into skiing and then I'll, I'll ask you another question off of that, but go with that first. Yeah. So in 2015, uh, I was an international DJ. So we haven't touched on that. I retired from 10 years of being an international DJ. Uh, I used to play techno and, and dance music and you know, I performed in over 30 countries. So I had a nice run at that. And in 2015, I was invited to a heli ski lodge in British Columbia um, by a friend of mine who you've actually met, Tom, who's a Jackson yeah. local. Yeah. And you know, Tom said, we're, we're hosting this party over Christmas in Canada. You should come. And I'm like, Tom, I don't ski. Why would I come? He's like, don't worry. There's about eight of you that are not skiing. You can just make sure the jacuzzi is hot, the beer is cold, the food is good. And if you like, you can snowshoe. But it's five star. You should absolutely come. And so I decided to go. Uh, we flew in. Uh, you know, big subwoofers and DJ equipment and all the speakers. And I had the time of my life. And I realized that I was part of the contingent of the house cats, let's call us, and <laughs> still had the time of my life. And there's like 20 other people that are jumping out of helicopters, skiing the best powder, like some of the best powder terrain on the planet, even just jumping out of helicopters. If you forget the skiing is like such an exciting thing. And I set the intention there and then that I would get into the sport. So two months later, I was DJing in Brazil. And I got a gig uh, uh, inquiry to go and DJ at a swingers party in Whistler. And so I obviously graciously accepted that. And in between all of the madness, um, you know, spent a couple of days skiing. And this was, uh, this was February of 2016. It was family day or president's day. Um, but they have a different name for it up there. And you know, it was like learning how to walk on a highway, just complete madness. But you know, it, it was the start of my ski career. And so that's, that's what was the, you know, that's what got me into the sport, heli skiing. Yeah, that's fantastic. That's a, that's such a fun, fun, <laughs> a fun way to get into a new sport. You yeah. go to the best possible spot to ever. Was it, was it bald face? Uh, Micah. Micah. Sick. Yeah. Cool. And, um, had you done any other sports that may have given you, uh, an easier transition into skiing? Like, I don't know, ice skating or or water skiing or something like that? No, you know, I just tried uh, water skiing for the first time on Jackson Lake back in July. Um, I had done a bit of wakes, uh, wakeboarding when I lived in Thailand, um, but no sports that would have any kind of transferable skills into, into skiing. And to be brutally honest, like my first, my first day of skiing, I probably fell like 30 times on the green slope. Yeah. But I'm just fanatical about numbers. So having that baseline of 30, then gave me something to work with. Then I went onto that same slope again and I got that down to like, you know, 25 and I just kept doing it and doing it. And I think I ended that day like having fallen just seven times. And so that's just kind of how I approach this. I like to brute force it. And if I have a metric that I can work against, I just keep hammering my head against the wall until that number comes down. That's fantastic. Um, so then you, how many, how many years did you, were you into skiing before you decided 
that I'm going to do this crazy idea to become Jamaica's first downhill skier uh, in the Olympics. So, so I skied the two days, as I said, in uh, 2016. Didn't get to ski again until the following year. Uh, got to go spend five days out in Mammoth right after they had like 14 feet of snow come down in three days and just shut the town down. Uh -huh. um, then went to Revelstoke, skied a bit more, got to heli ski. My ninth day of skiing ever was heli skiing back at that Mica Lodge <laughs> in Christmas of 2017. So kind of like in the deep end. And I'm like, this is great. Obviously, I struggled. I didn't do well. Like skiing bottomless powder, like on your ninth day of skiing, is just not something normal people try to do. Yeah. I'm surprised I'm even allowed to attempt it. But in 2018, things got a little bit more serious. So friends of mine set up an event in Revelstoke, British Columbia, called Send It. Uh, I skied four or five days out there. It was a there's 150 of us, 160 of us, all in costume, drinking, just you know, having a great time. Mm -hmm. um, and then from there, I went to the Olympics and realized that Jamaica only had three athletes representing us in, in, in the winter sports. So it kind of like a light bulb went off. Also, we've watched Cool Runnings probably for the 20th time for me, but we watched it on the drive home mm -hmm. after having watched the two-man bobsled event. Um, then I skied in Japan. Then I skied in Patagonia or, or you know, Chile and Argentina. And I was like hooked, completely hooked. So in 2019, I went back to British Columbia uh, to Revelstoke and a couple of friends had decided that what we would do is that instead of taking a, a hotel for five days for this event, we would take a house for the whole month. It costs about the same. And it was my decision that if I could survive a month of skiing uh, and I loved to ski fast and I had no technique, it was terrible, kind of kamikaze. If I could survive a month of skiing at that point, then I would look into the possibility of maybe getting to the Olympics. Now, five days into that month, I got the opportunity to ski with former U.S. national skier Gordon Gray. And I said to Gordon, I have this crazy idea. I'm thinking about potentially getting to the Olympics for Jamaica. I know that you're a top-tier skier. Can you give me your, your thoughts and, and your feelings on it? So he'd never seen me ski before. At the end of the first kind of session at lunchtime, he sat me down. He said, okay, I'm going to be brutally honest. Your technique is absolutely atrocious. <laughs> But that's to be expected. You've skied, what, like 25 days, 27 yeah. days, 26, and you've had two lessons. Of course, your technique sucks. He says, but what I can't figure out for the life of me is how the hell you're keeping up with me. I've been skiing since I was two years old. I ski for my country. And here you are, like, you're, you're like keeping, I don't understand that. You're fearless. And he said, having no fear means you have more than half the battle won. And, like, we can teach you technique. And it was actually Gordon who helped me figure out which discipline would be best suited for my skills, what I needed to do to qualify, what the differences was or is between all of the, all the different disciplines in alpine skiing, because I knew nothing of that. And so Gordon's been super helpful, um, helping me figure out that I can actually do this and it is a possibility. So around about like early 2019 is when this thing started to become a, a reality. Wow, that is, that is just nuts. And then... And, and I can totally see how you got hooked from skiing because all the locations you said are like the most world-class ski destinations and you're doing these heli trips, you're doing all these, you know, group events. And it's like, that's like the peak of the funness of skiing, right? Like powder days, big, these big resorts in Canada here, you're, you're only seeing the best face that skiing has in all of your yeah. experiences so far. Yeah, well, I hadn't skied Jackson at that point, and I hadn't skied 
I hadn't skied the pass or the uh, or the park at that point. So there was still more fun stuff to come. But yeah, no, totally. If you're skiing like if you're getting to see heli skiing and you're getting to go to Niseko and Patagonia, you're kind of ticking a lot of the bucket list ski destinations for a lot of people. It's natural that you would be excited and addicted yeah. to this thing if those are the destinations you're seeing. Yeah, for sure. Um, so then how did you get to how'd you get to Jackson or how'd you decide that this is where you wanted to live and continue to ski or to so my, explore so skiing? My, yeah, so as we started to approach the start of last season in October, I wasn't sure which mountain I was gonna call my home. And I, I had a plan to come up to Jackson for the opening weekend and, and come and see the ski. Uh, my dear friend Tom had set up like a, a group of people that were going to come together for Thanksgiving, which is when Jackson opens. Uh, and so my only intention was to ski a couple of weeks there and then figure it out. Prior to that happening, I had planned to go back to England just to kind of be a gym rat for a couple of weeks or for a month to get ready for the ski season. Ski season. And, and Tom was like, dude, if you're going to train for the mountains, why would you train anywhere else other than the mountains? Don't go back to England. My house is empty. Just go have at it. He's like, mm -hmm. go earn your turns. Like, get out there in the backcountry before the season starts. That's how you'll get good at it. Unfortunately, as you guys probably remember, October uh, and early November was super warm. Yeah. And so there was no backcountry skiing prior to the season. And randomly, my appendix burst like five days after getting into Jackson. <laughs> so I was in St. John's Hospital for three days and I spent most of November recovering. But, you know, kind of fell in love with the town. Everyone at the hospital was amazing. Everyone in the town that I was meeting was, was so cool. And when Tom arrived uh, in like Thanksgiving, he was just like, dude, just stay here in Jackson. And it was, it was an easy, easy thing to agree to. And so I, I spent the entire ski season in Jackson and just absolutely loved the town. Yeah, that's fantastic. Tom's a good, a freaking good friend to have. Good guy. Yeah, absolutely. That's super cool. And then, so did you, so once the season started, were you just, were you just like going to the resort every single day or you were in the back country? What'd you do? What'd you do more of? Uh, I was in the resort every single day until COVID hit. Um, I had a bit of traveling that I had to do. Again, I went back to British Columbia for that event. Again, we went heli skiing. Uh, I needed to go back to, to Europe to take care of some business. So I missed a few days. Um, I was very motivated by the Jackson Hole Tracker app, the JH Insider. And for the first month until I had to leave and disappear for a couple of weeks, I was top of the leaderboard. That was like my motivation. I was there every day skiing as much as possible. Um, but it wasn't really until COVID hit that I, that I started to figure out what was going on in the backcountry. Uh, I'd never skied the pass until, until COVID block, uh, kicked in. Um, but I didn't miss a beat. As soon as the chairlift stopped running, we were in the backcountry or we were, we, we were kind of hiking up the King and doing that. I mean, you'll probably remember Snow King turned into the town gym for everyone mm -hmm. and it kept everyone sane. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, the, the backcountry element of being in the park or like on that pass in Jackson is just world-class. It's, it's, it's like such an adventure playground for adults. It's incredible. Yeah, I totally agree. It's, that's, so I live, I live actually in Wilson, not far from where Calico mm. is. Mm -hmm. yep. So I moved and I moved in here on April 2nd. So I got a little bit of uh, a couple days going out to the pass last winter, but I'm really excited to be this close to... Um, actually not only the pass, but to the Stilson parking lot thing. So I can just like, yeah. walk, I could just like basically walk there and ride into the resort, Take the bar. drive the five minutes to the pass and, and, you know, spend the entire day out there or just do a quick glory lap. I do a lot of just like, uh, quick laps up glory if I need to. 
Right. Yeah. I, I must have I must have done like 50, 60 glory laps this summer. I mean, yeah. I basically skied a hundred consecutive days, uh, which ended on the third of June. So there was a lot of time on the glory, a lot of time on Taylor, a lot of time over at Togwardy. Um, yeah, I really milked the season for as long as it could go. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Those are all great spots. I've not done Taylor Mountain yet, um, but I've done uh, on Togedy. I've snowmobiled a bunch of times there. Yeah. And um, then and my girlfriend and I, we toured up or we skinned up. Um, I don't know. I actually know, don't know the name of the peak, but it's if, you're, if you are looking at Togedy Lodge, it's like the one to the east of it, like east and behind it. Hmm. I'm not. I, you know, I'm not familiar with the names over there as well. I mean, I was fortunate enough to have Travis Rice as our guide the first time we went out there in, in the end of end of April. Um, <laughs> what do you? How does that happen? How do you have? How do you have every connection that's needed in the world of skiing and snowboarding? Uh, it's good to have a buddy like Tom. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that's a good right. They're friends with each other too. I ran into, I met yeah. Travis one day out here and. And I told him I lived on Saddle Butte, and he was like, "Oh yeah, do you guys, you know these guys?" Yeah, 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 yeah. That's no, insane. it's great, and and also, you know, Lindsay Dyer is also part of our crew, and so all of these people have just been so nice in helping connect me to the right people. Um, so shout out to everyone that's kind of helped me along the way here in Jackson. It's, yeah, it's, shout it's out. It's been so helpful. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Well, um, so if you could just go into now, like. You kind of touched on the how cool our backcountry is, but um, talk about when you first came to Jackson, like what, or even just your first time into like real mountains. Talk about the yeah. feelings that that pulled out of you, like what you thought, what you saw. Uh, talk about that a little bit. So my first real time in into the backcountry, you mean, or just in general? Just mountains, just mountains in general. It doesn't have to be even American mountains, like wherever your first mountains are. This is stories from a mountain town. So, so, so I'll give you, I'll, yeah, I'll give you a story. So the manager up at Micah, the operations manager, Tommy, Tommy Gunn, we call him. He was up on the mountain when Tom and another friend of mine um, had decided that for all of the house cats that were chilling in the heli, heli ski lodge, what they would do is throw us in a helicopter um, and have us meet them on top of the mountain for lunch one day. And so they, they drop us off and the helicopter disappears and you're in absolutely the you know, super remote place. Yeah. And Tommy remembers the story because the first thing I did is I did a running swan dive into the powder and just made the biggest <laughs> snow angel ever. And Tommy was just like, you know, I've grown up in British Columbia. I just take this for granted. And this is a guy that's never seen this before. Look at the joy and excitement on his face. And yeah. I was just like, you know, it, it's so special, the sport that we do, it's so special to be in these extremely remote places that are, you know, some of the most stunning, most aesthetically pleasing, um, you know, views and, and, and some of the most insane terrain. And we get to treat that like our playground. Mm -hmm. And so there's so many times when I'm out there by myself or just with one buddy and, you know, we're in a very remote part of the park or Cogley or wherever it is, and just feel blessed to have the ability to just kind of treat this as our playground like there's something so special um about just being outside and in, in natural beauty and especially when so many of our friends that are back in cities were locked down during this kind of initial corona period and for most of us in jackson we didn't really got we didn't really miss a beat we 
were able to get out in the backcountry. They might have messed yeah. around with the car parking regulations and might have made things a little bit annoying, but we were still able to get there. And it was just, it was such a blessing. I, it really felt like COVID wasn't happening for us in Jackson. At least that's how I felt. Yeah, you're totally right. I, I work from home full time. And at that time I was living on the Butte. So it was just like, I just worked from home and I went and skied in the backcountry like normal. I mean, I didn't go to the resort obviously because that closed. Yeah. Um, and then my own, and I don't, I'm not like a huge go to bars guy all that often. So like the only difference was that like there wasn't anybody here and uh, I had to think about wearing a mask to the grocery store. Right, right. You know, and minor, a little more traffic in the pass. Yeah. Yeah. Which are all totally minor. Yeah. And we had that freedom to go out and do pretty much whatever we wanted yep. um, and still be extremely safe. Like you couldn't be more socially distanced than what we like to do for fun. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The one thing that happened in Jackson that I did miss is that they shut down The Verge. I love playing pool in that bar. <laughs> Where's The Verge? I don't think I've been there. It's, uh, if you're driving towards the, the village, it's maybe like two blocks before Albertsons on your left-hand side. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Awesome. I'll sit. I wonder if it's that's like very, very local, local bar. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I have been here for... Oh, the Virginian. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Oh, yes. yeah, yeah. I've never heard it called the Verge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Virginian. Yeah. I've, I've, I've not, not actually been there, but um, yeah, that's awesome. Cool, man. Um, so what, what else do you want to talk about? <laughs> I think, I mean, I um, think we got your story, your story out there. Um, yeah. So I'm super excited to come back. I'm super excited to announce that I have a sponsor, but I can't announce it just yet. It's a company Ooh. out of Jackson. I would love to give them a little thumbs up right now, but I can't because we're, we're almost there. Um, you know, shout out to Eric across the JHMR, the marketing department. He, uh, he's been very helpful on this whole project as well. And I'm at that part of my stage where I'm still looking for sponsors. So it's a little known fact that most people that go to the Olympics um, leave the Olympics somewhere between thirty dollars to $50,000 in debt. Obviously, training for something of this scale requires a full-time uh, devotion and most people can't do that at the same time as working uh, and, and, and coaching and whatnot is, is super expensive so there's two things I'm looking for one is introductions to interesting companies that might like a, a fun story like mine uh, and secondly I'm actively looking for a ski coach in Jackson for this coming ski season well I actually this this stuff I'm wearing right now this logo and this logo so yeah. my uh, part-time thing that I do for, for work around here is I run a little marketing company that I started yep. and this client, this is one of our clients. It's called Jackson hole still works. Have you been, have you, did you yeah, know guys I have. yeah, yeah, yeah. They do lots of, they do all the, all the liquor, right? Yeah. They have, they have uh, a vodka, gin. a regular gin and then a double cask gin. Right. right. Um, but I think they, I, I could talk to Chaz and Trav and see what they think about the idea of sponsoring you for this because they're That's really awesome. into like, I mean, we'll call you, we'll call you a local for all intents and purposes. They're all into like the local stories, helping people out. Yeah. You know, it's very valuable for their brand to be attached to cool stories like this, obviously yeah. from the marketing standpoint. Um, but I'll definitely run this by them and see what they think. That would be great. And I, and, uh, let's see, ski instructor, um, Nate, Nate Emerson. Do you know him? No, hasn't, I haven't come across him. He's uh, he, he's an instructor for the for the resort, um, 
but he's a uh, he's a friend of Taylor and I's, um, and uh, his 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 wife runs a company that does um, hydration IV IV hydrations around here. House call hydrations, okay. what they're called. Yep. Um, but I, I know he's a good instructor, and I think he's been doing it for years. So I can I can drop your name with him too. Would love that. Yeah. Would love that. Very cool. Um, and it's always see. good to have someone that can give the IV rehydration drips. Yeah. Yeah. They, the yeah. Definitely. Oh uh, yeah. I'll, I'll I'll text I'll text Lindsay is his wife's name and Nate and just say like hey this guy's looking for some ski instruction he's you know yeah. a high performing athlete and he he might need some of your help. Yeah. Awesome. I definitely. appreciate that. Um, yeah, I don't want, I don't want to end this yet, but I'm just trying to think of things for us to talk about. <laughs> um, let's see. What's your, what's your current, um, touring ski touring setup? Like your skis oh, and your terrible. bindings, your boots. Terrible. So I, I, I basically have a bunch of hand-me-down stuff, which is insane because I look at my, the list of the things that I have, or there are moments when I'm out there in the backcountry, and everything is either like a loner or like it's Tom's or is something that's like a hand-me-down. So I need some new boots for this year, working on that. My, uh, I'm using frame bindings, um, like a really old touring setup. But the funny thing is when I, when I go out touring with people, they kind of look at my setup and they're like, you know what, I feel sorry for you. You're carrying all that extra weight. Yeah. I just look at it as training weight. You know, I, uh, I really hit it in the backcountry. I, I, I basically climbed the sum total of 10 Mount Everests since COVID kicked in. 297,000 vertical feet is what I climbed and skied since the chairlift stopped. And I did this in like, you know, with crappy equipment. So one of the side effects of COVID for for me, and I guess a lot of other people that weren't sitting on chairlifts anymore was insane fitness. Um, So that was great. But yeah, looking for ski sponsors as well. I have a couple of leads on that. Like Everything's up for grabs. Every part of my body, apart from the one thing that I'm working on with this one brand, is up for grabs. <laughs> yeah, awesome. What uh, what my girlfriend did for um, she wanted to get a touring setup last year. Um, Wilson Backcountry Sports they sell their demo their demo touring setups right. at like super cheap at the end of the season. Yeah, so we could do we could work something out there with them because that'd yeah. be like like she got volley. Uh, V8 somethings and then some pin bindings and nice boots and and all the good right. stuff. So that's like a full setup and it's not as not as expensive and it's the best stuff. Yeah. So I think for me, I, I really don't know how much backcountry I'm going to get this year because realistically, with this being my run to qualification, oh, I yeah. really just need to be on the corduroy every morning. Yeah. Um, I, I'll For probably sure. be spending a chunk of time over at Snow King as well. Um, and just like spending time in gates. Because what's really funny is, as I said, um, I had this master plan that was put together for me by this random coach that I met online from Canada, Mike Schneider. And he was like, 2020 season, just do about 10 races. Um, I only got to six because all of our races in Jackson were canceled um, and because of the races in Mammoth being canceled. Um, And he's like, don't even worry about being competitive. This is just really for you to figure out the system, make all the mistakes that you're definitely going to make and make them when it doesn't matter. Um, And then he's like, the 2021 season is all about really going after it and chasing points and that will get you to qualification. So I will say that Jackson is such a fun mountain, as you know, that it's so easy to just spend all of your time just in, you know, in the side country or like off piece between trees, which is great. 
but it's not what I'm trying to uh, to get the Olympics for. So I need to be a little bit more disciplined this year. Yeah. So yeah, after we get you in the in the the racing scene, your next thing will be first um, first Jamaican in the free ride world tour or something. That'll exactly. be your next yeah. event, adventure. <laughs> well, here's the interesting thing. Something that I've considered as a side effect of the fitness that I got through all of the backcountry uh, exercise that I did is there is a possibility that even though the race calendar seems to be somewhat normal, there's a possibility that things happen, right? The resorts might shut down, there might be outbreaks, et cetera, et cetera. So what I'm considering and I'm keeping in my pocket as like a plan D is potentially being the first Nordic skier for Jamaica as opposed <laughs> to Alpine if I can't get to enough races to qualify. Yeah. Now, to qualify for Nordic skiing uh, at Olympic level, which is again, B standard, means I would need to do a 15 kilometer cross country in about 45 minutes, which I think I could almost do right now by virtue of the fitness that I've been bestowed from from all of this kind of backcountry and mountain climbing. So that's my plan B. So I'm going to be looking into that as well. So I might even just do both if I can anyway and be the first Nordic and first Alpine skier. That is awesome. What other, um, what other winter sports has Jamaica had athletes in so far? Uh, so obviously the bobsleigh, super famous bobsleigh yeah. team, uh, 1988. Um, we have had female bobsled. Uh, skeleton, both men and women, I believe. We have had a skier before. He was a freestyle skier, Errol Kerr, based out of Tahoe. He competed in the 2010 games. He did very well. He finished ninth, which is the highest finish for any Caribbean athlete in the Winter Olympics. Um, and I believe that's it. Just those three or four disciplines. We do potentially have two female ice skaters. Uh, that will qualify for 2022. Uh, and we do also have a pretty decent hockey team based out of Toronto, I believe, um, <laughs> that are not yet Olympic qualify, qualifying standard. But hopefully in a, few, in a few Olympics time, we might have a Jamaican Olympic, uh, Olympic hockey team. Yeah, that'd be cool to see. You probably don't see a lot of dreadlocks coming out of a hockey helmet as, yeah. as much as, as, as other helmets. <laughs> that'd be awesome. Um, does the... Um, does the, the, the bobsled and skeleton stuff, does that, that um, pattern come out of the original guys? Or is that like a, a thing in Jamaica where it's organic, separate from the fact that there's this fame along with the Cool Runnings group? No, I think, I think the guys from 1988 were just such trailblazers that showed that we could, as Jamaicans, have some success in winter sports, that it's always been a thing since then that people have tried to kind of keep going. The, the men's team don't always qualify. As I said, they didn't qualify in 2018. Uh, they didn't qualify in 2010. But there's a strong team that I'm in contact with right now that are looking like they'll qualify for 2022, plus the women's bobsled. So it, it's really just because of the 1988 cool running story. Now, yeah. the beautiful thing is uh, the driver from the 1988 uh, team is actually a mentor of mine. We speak every week. Um, so he's part of this team. Uh, he's such a great guy. Um, we're supposed to speak to him today, but he's based in Turks and Caicos, and you have that big hurricane that's going past Delta that's going to hit uh, New Orleans as well that's kind of causing some bad weather over there, so hoping he's going to be okay. Yeah, there's been some, like, isn't it been like nonstop hurricanes this, this fall? 
Luckily, it's missing us here in Jamaica. We just get a bit of the rain. Um, we're very, very blessed with our kind of positioning. Hurricanes go both sides, north and south of the island. They don't really hit here so often. Is that because it, does it like, does the landmass of Jamaica like split the storm on the, on the eastern side at all? Or like, is it jet stream or why does that happen? Yeah, I, I'm not sure. I really don't know. I mean, the last big one here, I think was 92. So it's mm -hmm. quite, a, quite a while ago. But yeah, I'm, I, I don't know the reason why. Yeah, that's weird because there's been so many that go through the, Car the Caribbean and yeah. to Florida and wherever. That's cool. So yeah, when, when I was in, I went to Jamaica when I was in college just for like a, a Christmas break trip. And we were at yeah. the, uh, stayed at the Ibero Star uh, Grand Rose Hall. Okay. I'm very close to that. Yeah. I, lo I absolutely loved being, going to Jamaica. That was my, that's my only time there. Because um, the water, it looks a little bit rougher today, but like that, at that time of the year, it was just like basically glass every day, all day, really yeah. nice water. Um, but I just liked how everybody spoke pretty much English. Yep, like yeah. I've been to Mexico, I've been <laughs> other places and you know, the, the not super client facing employees don't speak very great English, but everyone in right. Jamaica is, mostly speaks English. They have the, yeah. what do you call patois. the patois? Yeah. They have a little bit yeah. of that that they throw in in slang, but you can, you can have a conversation with anybody. Totally. Yeah. No, these, these waves are probably from Delta, the tropical storm that oh. moved on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Otherwise, it's super flat here as well. But you're right; it's a little rougher today. These are almost surfable waves. That way, yeah. it's surfable. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's, it's normally super flat. And where you stayed is within a couple of miles of where, where I am right now. It's super close. Yeah. Do you ever do you golf at all down there? I used to. I, used I golfed to golf a just. Um, I guess it would be like towards the airport on that that main road from that hotel we golfed at a, at a golf course that used to be an old like sugarcane plantation. Okay. What was, was, what name did you say? Half moon. I think it might be half moon. I can't remember, but it, but it <laughs> like the front nine took you down to the water and then there's like these old aqueducts around everywhere. And then it takes you back up and then the back nine takes you up the mountain. And then you're just like in the jungle going through the course and you go by like right. a, a, a voodoo witch's house on one of the holes. Oh, the, the great, uh, the great house. Yeah. That's just literally across the road over here. Yeah. Yeah. Super cool. And, witch. Yeah. Yeah. And there's that whole like creepy aspect of like, is the, is, is voodoo like, I don't want to say it's like a popular Jamaican thing, but is there like a part of like Jamaican culture that is the voodoo stuff? No. So I just heard that story. It was basically uh, the plantation owner. She apparently killed her husband, yeah. and then she would she would take her slaves as like sex slaves for a while, then kill them, and then after a while, like the the village or the town completely revolted and killed her. And yeah. apparently, her her body like haunts the house. And they do during non COVID times. They do haunted house tours up there. It's it's literally just across the road from where I am here. Yeah, so that's I don't the think one. It's a voodoo thing, but yeah. So yeah, yeah. I, I was just up there the other day. Yeah, that's the exact story. It was that, that's we we you get a caddy at that place, and that's what the caddy told us. Right, right. That's super cool. Um, another thing I loved about Jamaica, uh, I don't think people realize how much elevation there is. It's actually like the middle the middle area of of where you are is like pretty good elevation. Like how how much mm -hmm. um, vertical do you think that'd be from the ocean to the top of the mountain? 
So the highest peak in Jamaica is basically the same height as Saddle Butte, 7,300 feet above sea level. Um, unfortunately, no snow, but it does get a lot cooler when you go up there. And that's where the Blue Mountain Coffee comes from, which is super, probably one of the biggest international brands yeah. alongside Red Stripe, the beer, um, is Blue Mountain Coffee. And it's, it's grown in, in, in that part of the island. And what's, what a lot of people don't realize is it's quite mountainous. Like you said, you have yeah. the coastline. But then everything on the interior is, is hilly and luscious and green and mountains and rainforest and just everything grows and it's, yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, that's another thing that drew me to Jamaica. It was like, this isn't just uh, beach and then, you know, nothing in, inland from that. It's like, there's stuff yeah. to look at. And obviously my, me being loving mountains, I love to see that there. And I don't yeah. think that's a common knowledge of, of most people. Yeah, no, not at all. I haven't climbed Blue Mountain just yet. I'm here for another month, another five weeks. I absolutely have to climb it before uh, before I leave. But what people don't really know is that there's a curfew here. So 8 p.m. every night, you can't be out on the streets. Um, they're doing that to try and kind of keep the COVID numbers down. So Blue Mountain, you would typically get there at midnight or one in the morning and then just climb it for sunrise. Um, so I haven't been able to do that yet because of COVID. Yeah. So they when does it, when does the... When does that open up in the morning, like sunrise or 5 something? Yeah, yeah, 5 a.m. That's weird. Yeah, it's frustrating. They start, so I'm from, I'm from a suburb of Minneapolis in Minnesota, where I grew up, and they started doing curfews there too, but that was more because of all that rioting going on. It'd be so weird right. to like have a curf, like an active curfew going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's strange. But, I mean, the, the COVID numbers here are super low. The issue is we don't have the same level of infrastructure as like a Western country to yeah. deal with a, with a big outbreak. And so they're just kind of erring on the side of caution. Um, and I think there's the belief that Jamaicans can't be disciplined enough to go out and have a few beers and still maintain social distancing uh, yeah. and not kind of get like, and there are, there are reports of parties like every week there's a new report of a party. And so people are breaking the curfew, but uh, yeah, we'll see. It, it just is what it is. But as you can see behind me, it's still beautiful. We were still able to get out and exercise and swim and enjoy the beauty of the island. We just can't really do any of the nighttime stuff this, uh, this time around. Yeah. Are people allowed to come vacation there or stay in the hotels? Yep. So there is a tourist resilient uh, or COVID resilient corridor. So interesting statistic. I think 80% of Jamaica's GDP happens on the coastline, but only 1% of Jamaicans actually live in, on that, in that same kind of area where 80% of the, the kind of money or the where, where tourism happens. And so what they've decided is that tourists can come in um, and stay with inside of that corridor. So you can come to this hotel, for example, that's right next door to me. You can stay in the hotel. Most of them are all inclusive anyway. And then you're able to get out and do some of the tourist activities that are nearby, but you're not allowed to go to the interior to Kingston or other places like that. Yeah. Why did you do it, decide to hang out in Jamaica for so long? So my plan was to come down here. This is very embarrassing, actually. Jamaica was the 63rd country that I got to. I, this, was, this is my first trip to Jamaica, and I've been literally everywhere on the planet. Um, <laughs> so... The initial plan was to come down for two weeks to handle like all of the media side of my Olympic bid. Uh, and I did pretty well with that. It was on national TV a couple of times, national newspapers did all of that. The plan was to meet the Olympic Association, the Ministry for Sports, et cetera, et cetera. But two days after I landed, 
um, they called a snap election. The general election was supposed to happen in June of 2021. They just had it a month ago. And so everything was focused on that election, which delayed and just kind of hyperextended the timeline of what I needed to get everything done. Um, the intention was to then just maybe stay here for a month and then go to Switzerland. The problem is uh, to continue skiing. The problem is because I have a British passport, if I go back to Europe, it makes it complicated for me to get back into the States. I'm allowed into the States right now coming from Jamaica, but I can't come into the States from Europe because I would have been in Europe in the past 14 days. So yeah. I've just decided that I'll stay here until the snow starts to fall again uh, in Jackson and plan to be back in, in, in Wyoming for the middle of November. Yeah, awesome. Well, you sh it shouldn't be long now. We've already had, I think, three days of snow. Awesome. And one of them was thunder snow. <laughs> What's that? I've never experienced that. It, it's, it, was, it was pretty, not, not like scary, but it was, it was weird. It was a, a thunderstorm that came through and it, then it, the temperature just dropped enough to make it be snowy at the high altitudes and up in the sky. So then it was like nice. thunder and lightning, and then, but also snowing this super wet, heavy snow. Okay. And so like all, it was really, really windy. So all these branches were falling everywhere. It sounded like hail on, I have a, like a metal roof of my house so right, like right. hail hitting that but it was like branches it was i mean it was it was kind of a mess in the morning but it was this totally different um type of weather pattern that i've ever seen I've ever wow seen. I, have, I haven't experienced that but yeah super excited to get back uh i hope there's snow by the time i get back in the middle of november so we can get up on the pass and hit edelweiss and all of those other good ones that are good to yeah. catch in the early season yeah i love edelweiss i just I, whenever i drive past it i just look at different lines down it like where can I go? Yeah. Where's a new spot to explore? Where's a new spot to go down? Like, could yeah. we build a jump here, build a jump there, you know, wherever. We'll have to ski together when I get back. Yeah, definitely, man. Um, have you ever done, what's like your, what's your biggest, I know we're keep hitting on the backcountry skiing and that's not mm. your focus for this year, but what's your biggest like backcountry ski tour that you've ever done? 12,500 feet, Toggy, seven laps. Oh my gosh. That's insane. <laughs> I've, I've only skied at Targi once, but I need to go. I probably will tour there in the beginning of the season because they get, they get a little bit more snow than we do in the early yeah. season. Uh, maybe I shouldn't give this away, but there's one run on Targi that's called The Face. And it is, it's northwest facing. And it's, uh, you basically, you get up to the top of the dream, you kind of skin up to the top of the dream catcher chair. And then you come down, look as left of the chair. And there's this one beautiful face that's called The Face that I just ski over and over again. And on that day when I did seven laps, there was no one else out there. At the end of the day, I took a photo of my seven, my seven tracks throughout the course of the day. It was epic. Um, somewhat of a failure because I was hoping to hit 15,000 feet, but I still had like 15 days left before I hit my 100 consecutive days. And so uh -huh. I valued that more than hitting my 15K. And it was right before we had another powder I think it was like May 22nd. We had like a powder weekend. Do you remember like late May? We had like a powder weekend. Um, late May. Yes. There was yes, one I weekend yeah. where it was like powder conditions up on the pass. It was yeah. epic. This yeah. was the Thursday or the Friday before that. So I knew that weather front was coming in and it already hit 12 and a half thousand feet. I'm like, I need to save the gas because we've got like powder conditions coming in. Yeah. What, so, so you're doing all of this activity all the time. What kind of diet do you have? 
it's really funny because they just asked me this on national TV. <laughs> and they said, well, what kind of diet is that? And I said that I'm on the seafood diet. Uh-huh. And, they, and they paused and I said, I eat everything I see. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to put on weight. So it's, yeah. it's interesting to bring it up because when I first started in the backcountry, I was aggressively like dropping weight because of all this, this activity and not upping my intake. Yeah. So I dropped down to like 173 pounds. I'm six foot six. So that's really low for me. I'm um, six five. So we're the tallest guys in the mountain. Yeah. Oh, hey, buddy. <laughs> this, is my, this is my dog, Bridger. He decided that he wants to be on the podcast. Bridger, like, um, the, like the gondola. Like the gondola, yeah. Say hi, buddy. So since then, I've just been eating like a, like a lunatic. I just tried yeah. to get as much protein as, in, in as possible um, and just eating everything I see, literally. Yeah, definitely. I totally get that. I'm, so I'm 6'5", normally like a pretty skinny build, and I hover around like 180 to 190. And then I do, but then I do all these activities, like whether I'm mountain biking, hiking, touring, and it's just impossible to keep any weight on. It's hard, yeah. You have to kind of. Yeah, I like try to, you know, do some weight training, stay strong and all this stuff. But like, I don't, I mean, I eat a lot. Like what what more do I need to be doing to keep weight on? It's literally like a job, right? Yeah. It's just like you're eating as if it's one of your jobs. So yeah, uh, yeah, I I played, yeah, I played football in college. And so I went from like 170 in high school playing wide receiver. And then I had to bulk up for college football. And then, um, then I moved to play tight end and had to bulk up even further. So I got to 230 for my wow. senior year. And um, to do that, I was literally just lifting low, like low rep, heavy weight, everything, every day, like squats, bench, just the heaviest shit I could lift yeah. just to get that mass building. Um, and then I would eat Chipotle three times a week for lunch <laughs> just because of the calories. Like I just need the yeah. sheer amount of calories that Chipotle can provide because, yeah. and like with like a couple of protein shakes a day on, on either end of the day. Totally. And even at that, then I, I tore my ACL at the end of the season to end my career. And within like a month, I was back down to my normal weight because it was just such wow. an effort to keep the weight on and, and, and gain it. So yeah, it's like yeah. people are like, oh, like you poor thing. You like you're, you're just not naturally skinny. But it's like at, I had to work as hard to gain the weight as somebody would have – other people would have to do it to lose the weight. To drop the weight, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think one of the interesting things talking about weight and weight loss, it's, it's, it's such a blessing to have an activity that you enjoy, such as backcountry skiing, where fitness is just the side effect. Like, yeah. you know – Fitness is the little, the little riding on the side of the backcountry pill bottle. Like you don't care about the fitness. You're just going because you want to ski powder. Yeah. And so you just do whatever it takes. And at the end of the day, you're like, well, holy shit, we were out there for eight hours. Like how yeah. many calories did I burn? Like how, like I'm getting super fit because of this. Yeah. Yeah. I climbed the middle and I did like 25,000 steps or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I get a lot of people like asking me how I stay in shape. I'm like, I don't know. I, I mean, all my activities are just insanely intense. Yeah. Like yeah. my, you know, my, my casual day mountain biking or a casual, like an easy day at the resort, like riding chairlifts, it's still like burning a ton of calories and like totally. you could stay skinny just doing that. Yeah. Or stay a healthy weight. But yeah, people don't, yeah, that's a very good point of the, uh, the fitness aspect of backcountry skiing and even just any, any activities in mountain is really just the side effect of it. Like it's not yeah. the main focus, even though it is a, major part of it or it's a 
you get a lot of you get a lot of the fitness out of the activities, but it's not what we're doing it for. Sure, sure, yeah. No, like it's such a blessing to ha to have it as a side effect. It's really, really cool. And so we have a Peloton bike, and as a result of the fitness that I got, and obviously we're training at altitude. People pay a lot of money to go to altitude training camps. And Jackson's at sixty-two hundred feet. You start the park at sixty-seven hundred feet, going up to twelve thousand and above, and Top of the butte where I'm at is 7,300 feet. So I've been sleeping at 7,300 feet for nine months. Yeah. You know, to try and quantify what level of fitness I got out of backcountry skiing, we had a Peloton bike and I jump onto that Peloton bike and I'm finishing in the top 0.05% of the world. And it's just like, how did that happen? I'm not even training for this. How did that happen? And it's like, yeah. this is backcountry skiing. Yeah. And even just, yeah, to your point, just living here. Like you can just live here and be around and then go down to, to not to low, to no altitude and just kick ass and run a marathon yeah. or do whatever. Yeah. Like I've had, I've yeah. had the experience where I go to Minnesota and go on a mountain bike ride and in that flat land and I'm just cruising, like kicking my brother's ass, like superhuman yeah, keep up. And that's, yeah. that's a, another reason why like you don't see people, <laughs> nobody who lives in Jackson or any probably other mountain town is fat. Like, like I, you know, if you see someone that's overweight here, they don't live here. They're visiting. Yeah, yeah, they're visiting because just just walking around, going to the grocery store, walking around town, doing your things, you'll get to a healthy weight because your body just sure. has to work that much harder to do those things. So, so you know, at, at sea level where I am right now, there's 21% oxygen. Where you are in Wilson, there's like 16 and a half, 17% oxygen. So it's it's a big chunk less. It's a yeah. huge, like almost 25. And up, up at where I am at 7,300 feet, it's, it's just shy of 16%. So that's like 25% less oxygen than sea level. So it, it, it definitely makes a huge difference. And it, it's great for training. Like when I go and ski other mountains with other people that don't live up, up at altitude, people that are coming in from San Francisco or Seattle, I just see it in them. Even if they're fit, when they come to Jackson, they try to do this backcountry stuff at altitude. It's just such a challenge for them. So we're blessed again to be up high. Yeah, I didn't realize that. Uh, I've never heard of those percentages before. I mean, I knew it was obviously yeah. less oxygen up here, but I never knew. I never heard those exact numbers. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, so then I'm sure, like, maybe like once you get to ten thousand feet, you know, top of glory, top of uh, top of the resort, that's got to be like down to like fifteen percent. Yeah, yeah, fifteen, thirteen percent in yeah. that range. I, I have a, I have a graphic. I'll send it to you. Yeah. Have you ever climbed like the middle or the grand or anything? I haven't climbed the grand because it requires, uh, you know, a little bit of climbing technique. Mm -hmm. And I didn't think, that, you know, I haven't done any climbing in my life, but I've done the middle. I've done the south. Um, I did those by myself. As a funny video. I don't know if it's still on my Instagram, but I had this huge mountain beard. And I decided that I was going to end my kind of backcountry season, shall we say, by climbing the middle and shaving off my mountain beard right on the top on the peak of the, the middle. So I have a great video of that. And then when I came down, I was like, well, the south is right there. It doesn't seem like it's that challenging. So I went and did the south as well. I managed to convince um, Breezy Johnson, Lindsay Dyer, uh, and Sharif, the brown blader, into coming out on the 6th of August and doing one more lap on the cave couloir, which is right below the middle Teton. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it wasn't that fun. <laughs> but we yeah. got to take the box of skiing in August. That's awesome. I'm trying to find it on your Instagram. I don't, I don't know what's on here, but I don't yeah. think it's there. So, but I did the middle. I did. I just hiked the middle twice this summer. Once with a buddy for my first time, and it's such a great 
Uh, and the other one is I guided my brother up there. Um, yeah. But it's such a great like intro to big mountain ascents where yeah. you don't have to have the climbing gear. Um, the majority of it is just a really steep hike. Um, mm -hmm. And you can get that, you can gauge to, you can get that gauge to see, is this something I, I'm interested in doing these big mountain ascents? Um, you get the touch of a little bit of climbing with the scrambling up the couloir to kind of give you to like, yeah. you know, do I feel safe using my hands to climb up something with the exposure? Just give that, give, give someone that taste to be like, you know, this could be something I want to do or not do. Yeah. So lots of people have warned me about how bad that last kind of, it's the Southwest couloir you did, right? With the, yeah. the, the kind of like the, lo the loose rock. And lots of people have warned me about how dangerous that can be. You can get hit by a rock and all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. I, I thought it was fine. Everyone has a completely different risk tolerance. I thought it was completely fine. Uh, I did get myself into a bit of a stupid situation where I didn't come down the normal route because when I did it, it was still kind of like a bit of a steep snowfield. So I came around the backside just below the bottom of the couloir. Anyway, I got myself into a stupid situation. But, you know, I was inspired to climb the middle by uh, a video that Jackson, uh, JHMR, had put out with uh, Kira. Here is the uh, yoga teacher from Inversion that has one leg. Oh, yeah, and I saw she, that. Yeah, so she climbed the middle and then climbed the grand with this beautiful video that they put out there. And I was just watching it. And, I, you know, Lindsay was at the house at the time. I was like, how difficult is it to climb the middle? I want to go and do that and just went out and did it the next day. But, yeah, yeah you're totally right. It's it's a great mountain. It gives you the introduction to how you feel in those situations. And it's just another one of those things, getting to the top of that peak and to the top of the south and just looking around. You just There's this feeling of accomplishment, and it's like, I could definitely do more of this. Like, for sure, I'd love to learn a bit of climbing. And a lot of my friends are climbers in Jackson. I'm just not keen to remove my focus or move my focus away from skiing because in an ideal world, I would go straight to the southern hemisphere as soon as the skiing stopped being good. In, yeah. uh, in in the states, yeah. So maybe sure. I'll climb in a, in a, in another life or yeah. later in life, for sure. Definitely, yeah. You get up there and you feel that accomplishment and just that relief of like, oh, I made it up. You know, it's a false sense of security where you're like, oh, I'm done, but you're not yeah, done. No, no, it's no. six more hours, yeah. and I think I think going down the couloir is the is the sketchier part. For some reason, yeah. when you're coming down on that loose rock, is what pushes it away more than when I was climbing up it. So right. that was when I was just telling my brother, like, hey, we got to stay really close here and make sure that we, there's nobody below us and, like, just yell rocks if stuff starts sliding so we don't cause anything bad to happen. Totally. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it can, that, that can be super sketchy. But uh, luckily there was no, uh, no, in, no, no issues when I was up there. I, you know, I did it by myself, and it was, it was good. I would definitely take friends up there and do it again and look to do the, uh, the grand as well. Yeah. Yeah, maybe we should do, we should do a ski tour of the middle. I think that's doable. And I think, I, I don't know if you just like cramp on up the, the couloir, but you ski down it. You ski down who, the Southwest? I think so. That's, I had a friend who, who's done that and that's what he said he did. Awesome. That would be, I mean, that, that's freaking steep. That's steep. But what's also interesting is, you know, a lot of people, I'm not currently a big fan of this kind of couloir skiing. Like, because yeah. you're either like, you know, with these super super narrow couloirs you're either like just sending it like a banshee straight down the middle which i'm not going to do until we get past the olympics or yeah. you just have these hop turns yeah and i ski with a buddy of mine andy that loves these couloirs you just hop turn just but not really skiing I, I i don't this doesn't give me any excitement so but what's really interesting is once you clear the bottom of that southwest couloir the run all the way down into the meadows yeah. and then below that would be epic 
that would be insane if you had good snow quality. And I don't know. I mean, it's probably steep enough to just get one consistent glide, oh, yeah. right? You would go all the way. Because I've gone from, I've skied from, bef- so as you're coming up, before you get into that crazy, crazy rock field, I've skied from, let's say, the bottom of that rock field down all the way through the meadows. So uh-huh. you could definitely ski over that rock field and there's enough of a pitch that you'd have like one crazy long run. Yeah, yeah, that'd be phenomenal. Yeah, I don't, I, I like watching people ski the couloirs on video. I don't have a big desire to do them because of the same thing. It's not, I like the, the surfing, I snowboard. So it's like, I like the surfing ability to kind of pl- be playful and, and move around and see like, oh, there's a log, there's a rock I want to hit or yeah. there's something. And, and I, yeah. do, I do a lot of the touring with my dogs. So it's like, you can't bring them on some, cra- some of these crazy lines because they don't know anything cool. about the, the snow falling off of it or how to get down yeah. a cliff, obviously. The one line that I was disappointed that I wasn't able to do this year is the skillet on Moran. That's the one line that I really wanted to do. It's that trophy line that looks down onto Jackson Lake. Yeah. Um, but apparently everyone says that it's the most horrendous approach ever. Um, kind of weed whacking for a couple of miles just to get to the bottom of where you start to climb up. And it's best done with a boat, someone dropping you over and maybe spending the night and just kind of going straight up the face. So we weren't able to coordinate that in time, but that's definitely on the list for next season. Yeah, did you see Cody Townsend's video when he did that? I did, yeah. yeah. And it looked so, he did a good job of showing how sketchy it is. Yeah. Because he had, so he walked across Jackson Lake, camped on the shore, and they started at like 1 a.m. or midnight. And they, is my video looking okay with the sun glare? A little bit of glare. There, there we go. you go. I have a curtain or I have a shade right here. I can lower as the sun sets. There um, we go. And he, and they start super early and then they get to the bottom of it and they see little snowballs rolling down it, you know, yeah. and they're like, oh, that's not, that's not favorable. Yeah. <laughs> and they even thought like, do we just cut the, cut it right there and go back? Cause it, that could be bad. And then. We thought they'd start going up and check it out and then it worked out okay. But that scene where he's starting to ski down and the orange is just, the whole valley is just glowing orange was just profound. It was, it was so insane to watch that. Epic. I really, really, really want to do that. Yeah. Absolutely. That's episode 17 of the 50. I definitely yeah. want to do that. Yeah. I love, I've actually, I didn't get to chat with him, but I just love, I love, I met Cody once here mountain biking and then. I just love his character, how he's just kind of a chill guy, but clearly very motivated because of all the big, the ascents he does. And I like that dynamic where we have a lot of characters in the ski scene where they're clearly motivated. They're not this, this lazy hippie that you might think a skier is, a ski bum is. But obviously you have to be motivated to climb the things he climbs and do the things he does. And, you know, guys like Travis, guys like Cody, guys all over the place that are very, very motivated, but just in a sport that's associated with laziness and, being chill right 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 yeah no and yourself especially you the, probably i'd throw that throw there in there throw yourself in there too yeah no especially when it comes to the backcountry stuff it's like the amount of work that it takes to, to get some of those lines yeah is insane and you just kind of have to be out there to, to see it for sure yeah and it's 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 equal parts um the physical nature of, of you know walking with a lot of weight up a very steep hill at high altitude with danger, but it's also the mental aspect of all the research they have to do, and the not the backcountry knowledge, the avalanche knowledge, snowpack knowledge. Yeah. Where yeah. it's like if you're not sound in in either of those and and fully capable in either of those, it, you're, it's not going to go well. Yeah. No. Of course. That's probably why a lot of 
people can get really into into the backcountry aspect, the backcountry stuff. Let's see what happens this season. Um, I think a lot of people are going to take up the sport. Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens at JHMR with regards to how they kind of load balance people coming into the mountain. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there might be a bunch of people that end up booking holidays to come out to Jackson and for whatever reason, they're not able to get onto the mountain. So it's going to be really interesting to see what happens this coming season with regards to that and with regard to um, that country. Yeah, and, and you haven't been here for a while, but the it's been insanely busy here right now. Um, like, like more busy than a normal like July here. Yeah. And we're all kind of sitting on the edge of our seat waiting to see will this traffic slow down at all and give us any sort of shoulder season, you know, because the winter traffic doesn't really pick up until like the Christmas New Year's week. Yeah. December is pretty chill. Um, but you know, who knows? It could just, if there's a lot more people living here full time because they can, or they're actually taking more trips here, you know, we could, there could be a situation where start of the ski season or like start of when there's snow, we're back to full capacity again. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, does the park, Yellowstone Park, it doesn't close, does it? That like, it, it doesn't close before the end of the year. That, I mean, that's the big attraction. People are coming uh, in really to get the Yellowstone. Yeah. Well, Yellowstone closes in the winter. I think um, I, we'll look this up, but it's usually for the snow. There's only one road open in Yellowstone in the winter. Um, and it's right. like up in uh, the Lamar Valley area. Okay. I mean, yeah, because I, I, I was in Jackson all the way through until I think the 7th or the 8th of August. So, you, I mean, I definitely saw you guys had the okay. busiest July in, a, in the last few years, apparently. Um, yeah. And yeah, that's so just the, because Americans can't really get out of the country too easily right now. There's not many places to go. Yeah, uh, yeah. I was just talking about this with the other, uh, my earlier podcast. Um, so I think November, 1st of November is when that closes. Okay. Was when Yellowstone so closes for the winter. We'll, we'll still get some of a shoulder season then. Those, yeah. That kind of like that little period in between. But as you said, lots. Of, I know people that have, have decided to rent houses long term in Jackson to move their kids to school to Jackson out of New York or, or or LA or other places. I think a lot of people are looking for a plan B out of the city right now, just in case we have a crazy lockdown all the way through winter. Because I don't think a lot of people realize that. You know, for our friends that are in New York that were super miserable, things didn't lock down until the middle of March. Mm-hmm. Now, if we go into the second wave and it's super serious and things start to lock down, as they are starting to do in New York, you know, there are some boroughs that are completely locked down. The concept of having restaurants open at 25% is probably going to change uh, in New York City. If there's, a, if there's a lockdown through winter, but now the lockdown starts in November or in October, that's just going to be complete misery. Four or five months of lockdown, six months of lockdown. Yeah, it's that's that would that would cause mayhem. That was cause like mass insanity of people just being locked up, not being able to do anything, not being able to see anybody, and then yeah. the uh, the mental effect, um, the mental side effect of people losing their jobs. Um, it's kind of why you're seeing some of this craziness. You know, they don't have anything to do. That if they feel a little bit less worth than they actually are. Um, and that, that toll, I don't think is being, um, calculated into the, the overall effect of, of the lockdown idea. Yeah, sure. Like we've seen, we've seen really crazy high numbers of suicide in the places that have the most lockdowns. 
Yeah, the most strict lockdown. And then we're seeing really high amounts of domestic abuse cases because child abuse. Yeah. And those are all things that should play a factor, you know, that the economic effect and the disease really should be playing an effect onto the, the, the decision making. And I don't know if it is. Yeah. Well, the, the optimistic thing is that we are learning how to deal with the disease much better. Yeah. Um, I, you know, if we rewind the clock six months, uh, what are we now? Yeah, that'll be start of March, yeah. or five months. Everyone was being thrown onto ventilators super early and we realized that that's not perhaps the best thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are lots of treatments that are meaning that even though the numbers are exploding again in certain parts of Europe, or for example, the death rate is not going up anywhere near uh, in, in comparison to what the ratio would have been back six, five, six months ago. So mm-hmm. doctors are learning more about it. Yeah, definitely. And we're and along with like the, uh, the, the curing medicines, we're, we're learning about the preventatives as well. Like knowing that if you take doses of vitamin D or get out in the sun more, that can help being yep. healthier, just in general, good diet, drink a lot of water, exercise. Those are all things that even if you do catch it, you're, it's not going to be a bad experience. Yeah, yeah. Like you and I probably, if we got it, we would, we, it may be a fever and maybe a slight, slight cough. We may not even notice it since we're in such good shape. Well, vitamin or vitamin D uh, here is plentiful, yeah. obviously, but I'm still yeah. taking my supplements of both the C and D. But it's interesting you say that. So there's a study um, that was conducted on the NFL players and they found that 35% of the NFL players that have had COVID, even the ones that were asymptomatic, suffered some form of myocarditis, which is an inflammation of the heart, muscles in the heart. Oh. What does, what does that mean? Not sure. Does it mean that there's a higher likelihood that they'll have issues later in life? Yes. But how severe? We don't know. So there's, like, like, there's still some long-term ramifications to do with this virus that we're not completely sure about right now and won't be sure about for a little while. So I still feel like Contrary to what I personally have felt earlier on in the, in the virus and, and what others may still feel, I still feel that precaution and trying to avoid getting it is the, the best measure. I was part of that group of people that was like, you know, it's not going to affect us. We may be completely asymptomatic. I just want to get it done and get it out of the way so that I have the antibodies and so I can go back to some kind of semblance of normal life. Yeah. But there's still that random kind of roulette curveball element that some people are just going to have this weird sequence of events or weird... Uh, you, you know, something to do with their DNA or genetics that just means that even a very healthy person like we have seen could, could have it really bad or even die. So it's yeah. still such a weird thing. You're right. It is a weird thing. We can't pinpoint exactly what it is. And there's like thoughts that it could be different in Asia, the ones coming from the virus coming from Asia. It could be different than the one yeah. coming from Europe. And yeah. it's like this, just this slight difference in the DNA of the virus that changes the way we get affected by it and how it's cured and then everyone's different reactions to it. Like name any symptom that's not like a normal way that people live. And it's probably a COVID system or a symptom right. yeah. outside of like a runny nose. Like it's everything else. It's like people's toes have gotten <laughs> fallen off. Like you lose your taste. Yeah. You lose your smell. Use your, use your, use your taste. Like it's so random. All these different um, symptoms. Yeah. Weird times, but we'll get to tell our grandchildren that we live through this moment. Yeah, definitely. They'll be like, they'll be taking like toilet paper for granted and we'll be like, back in my day, we had to fight people for toilet paper. 
And they're like, but, but dad, I just want to sit inside today. Like, oh yeah? In 2020, I was forced to sit inside. For six months, yeah. Yeah, get your ass outside. Go climb a mountain or something. <laughs> well, that's always good advice. Yes, yes, definitely. That's been something that I've been closing the podcast with, is like, go climb a mountain, go read a book. I love that. Speaking of which, we're at about um, just over an hour, I think. Is there anything else you'd like to get out to the audience um, about yourself, about your process, anything like that? Um, website is benji.ski, B-E-N-J-I dot ski, S-K-I. Uh, and if you type that into Instagram as well, you can see all the fun things that I post from time to time. And that's going to get a lot more active as I get back to Jackson. Um, but no, just, you know, one of the things that I really hope what I'm doing right now can be is an inspiration to people to, as you say, get out and climb a mountain. But the fact that I can pick up this sport at the age of 32 and, and have so much fun with it and hopefully have some success with it when I get to the Olympics and feeling pretty confident about getting there and hopefully I can turn in a really good result. You know, it's kind of mind blowing to think that before the age of 32, I'd never tried this sport on a mountain before. So if there, are, if there are people in Jackson that don't ski, and there's, there's a surprising number of them there that don't ski or haven't skied, even if you're in your 30s or 40s, get out there and just get through the uncomfortable part, and there's a lot of fun just waiting on the other side of that. Definitely, man. Awesome. Well, yeah, I will, um, I'll tag your website in the podcast description and in the Instagram post. You'll be tagged in that so everybody, all my audience, can see you and find you and follow along. Um, uh, thanks again for coming on. This has been really fun. Can't wait till you get out here and we can get a, get a ski together. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been great. Awesome, man. I'm just going to stop the recording and then I'll...